Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder, which, of course, is the show about ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things. And, you know, you can do that, too. And, and why not? Why settle for a life that is anything less than extraordinary? Yeah, and I want to caution people here. You don't have to be rich or famous to do it. In fact, it's usually just the opposite. Growing Boulder is about pursuing your passions, about finding a way to not only enjoy every day, but to make a difference in the lives of the people that are around you. Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. On today's show, folks, we've got a poetry pioneer who knows something about the millions of Americans now suffering from Alzheimer's that actually has the potential to dramatically change their quality of life. Yeah, and we have a two-time Academy Award nominee who, wow, they've also won a Golden Globe, an Emmy, and a Tony, whose new film is all about discovering that you're never too old to learn. And the 70-something Superman who's on a mission to prove that you can get stronger with age. That and more is coming up on Growing Boulder. what boomers fear more than anything, more than cancer, more than cardiac disease, Alzheimer's disease. And there's good reason to fear it, too. Nearly 50% of all people in their 80s and above develop Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. It's now the sixth leading cause of death in the United States and is the only cause of death among the top 10 that cannot be prevented cured, or even slowed once it starts. Yeah, it's a great point, Bill, which is why we are very excited today to have in the studio a woman who is actually at the vanguard of those who are dealing with one of the most pressing health care issues in history. Her mission is to improve the quality of life for Alzheimer's and dementia patients, and she's doing that by pioneering a new way to not only engage, but also to creatively stimulate this large and unfortunately growing group. She now travels nationally, not only speaking, but conducting facilitations, workshops, seminars, training programs, and more. She is the creator of Mind's Eye Poetry. Let's welcome Molly Middleton-Meyer. Hey, Molly, how are you? I'm doing great, Mark. Thank you. We are so pleased to have you stop by. And as bad as those numbers are that Bill just quoted, they're only going to get worse. Uh, What do people in your field mean when they talk about the so-called Alzheimer's tsunami? Uh, what they mean about that is that there are uh, there's a growing segment. Obviously, the the boomer segment is uh, growing older, and uh, life expectancy still you know continues to go up. Fortunately, um, but as Bill mentioned, uh, if you if you're lucky enough to live into your 80s and beyond, uh, your chances of developing the disease increases dramatically. So, um, it is a scary thing. The the statistics are terrifying, um, but you know I believe that there's there's a new way to look at the disease, and uh, that's what I'm trying to do. All right, before we take a look at the new way, let, let's do lay out some of those numbers because, as you say, they are frightening. Over 5 million people in the U.S. today are living with Alzheimer's. That number, folks, is going to jump to 16 million by 2050. And here's really one of the more frightening things the direct cost to care for these patients in America alone. $214 billion today will skyrocket to $1.2 trillion in 2015. So you make a living now, Molly, going to memory care, assisted living homes, and engaging these patients. What do you know about them that we don't? What I know about them, what I've discovered, is that uh, there is a, a long time where a person with Alzheimer's, a person living with Alzheimer's, is actually living. Uh, they have the capacity to experience joy. Uh, they understand kindness. They can love. They can laugh. Uh, they are creative individuals, and so many times that is overlooked, and they aren't engaged. Um, and when they are engaged, I'm finding that it is an empowering feeling for them because so many times they are written off or they're given activities that are demeaning um, or the reverse. They're given activities that are so challenging that they feel inept, inadequate, or embarrassed. So it's kind of trying to find that right mix that, that engages and empowers them. But, but of everything you could have pulled upon, you know, I've heard people do it with music. You do it through poetry facilitation, which seems on the surface that that would be awfully complicated. How do you do that? You know, it really isn't that complicated. When you think about poetry, at least the way I think about it, um, is that it's sort of verbal, uh, verbal music. 
there's a rhythm that's inherent to it. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like everybody on some kind of primal level can relate to that rhythm. And it's just really the way that it's presented. Um, I sometimes use great poetry, uh, poetry that's considered, you know, the, the, the top of, you know, what we consider to be the greatest literature ever written. But most of the time, I just use poems that I find that I feel that are relatable, that might be memory triggering, um, and certainly will um, inspire some creativity. You know, I think that that's the part that surprises most people is that uh, th- they do have memories there that, uh, th- that you have figured out a way to tap into. And some of the caregivers we know, because we, we, we videotaped a session with Molly recently, folks, that we'll put on Growing Boulder TV ve- very, very soon. But, you know, one of the interesting things that you've said, Molly, is that, you know, we all try to pull these people back. It is tragic that they have lost the relationships that define their life for so many decades. And you say what we need to do is let that relationship relationship go and establish a new one with them. You can't bring them back, so you got to go with them. Absolutely. And it's so much easier said than done, especially for family members. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, I lost both parents to Alzheimer's. So I'm speaking from some personal experience. That's the hardest thing there is to do is, is to not want to pull them back and to, uh, and to see um, what could easily be looked at as them moving away from us. Um, but that's part of the beauty of what I do is I didn't know them before, so I just judge them as who they are today. Um, and if we are willing to change our view, the lens that we look at them through and go on the journey with them, uh, amazing things can happen. It's magical, the things that I've experienced. So, so we kind of get that they have lost the ability to remember the past and in some cases even dream about the future, but they still have something that many of us are still trying to achieve every day. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we talk about living in the moment. It's something that we all consciously try to do. They just do it. That's what they have is the moment. And I think when we're so preoccupied about them losing themselves or us losing them, we forget that we have that moment, and that moment is very fleeting. And if we don't take advantage of the moment with them, and inspire them and, and hopefully stimulate them in that moment, that moment is gone. Folks, we're talking to Molly Middleton-Meyer, who is the founder of Mind's Eye Poetry. And as I mentioned, she really is at the vanguard of a new way of thinking about Alzheimer's patients and, more importantly, engaging them. Uh, and, and, Bill, if I may, a disclosure now. You know, I didn't want to say this until we got to this point of the interview because we would be interviewing Molly no matter who she was because what she's doing is amazing. But she is, in fact, my sister. And she mentioned that both of her parents uh, were lost to Alzheimer's over an 18-month period, something that she... She lived through with my brother more than I because they lived with uh, my folks uh, in, in Phoenix. And, and Molly, one of the really interesting things is despite your, your, your master's degree in poetry, despite your research into dementia, you say that you learned much of what you do today from our brother Tom, who is really the antithesis of, of what most people would think of as someone who should know how to handle these patients. Absolutely. Um, intuitively, he understood Uh, that it was about going on the journey with our parents. And um, at the time, you know, I just didn't have the skills. I mean, and I also was doing what so many um, Americans are doing, loved ones are doing. You know, I was handling finances. I was, uh, I was worried about selling their home. I was, I was doing the other things. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, there was a short period of time when our parents were in memory care facilities. And he dreaded going to see them there, partly because he did not like to see uh, you know, what he considered to be demeaning activities um, or to see people that were further along in the disease process. Uh, he did not want to see it, and he didn't feel like it was, it was beneficial for our parents to see it. So eventually both of them went home to live with him, and they had fun. He brought fun into their lives. He lived with them in the moment, uh, you know, and, and he improvised uh, depending upon the time of day, how they felt, you know, what they were interested in, what they were looking at. You know, my, my dad, our dad was on a motorcycle. Uh, you know, our mother, very creative, artistic. Um, he he base, basically brought a sense of play, um, not, a, not a childlike play, um, but, but tuned into what their interests were and just had fun with them. And, you know, I can honestly say their quality of life until the end of their life was phenomenal. And he just knew how to do this intuitively. You know, he turned out to be a great 
caretaker, but there are so many that don't know what to do. And it takes quite a toll on the caregiver as well. Absolutely. Um, without a doubt, Bill, they say that, um, and, and I truly believe it from having experienced it, that at a certain stage in the disease process, it is so much harder on the caregiver than it is on the person living with the disease. Um, there's just so much guilt that goes along with it. There's fear that goes along with it. Uh, you know, it's hard to look into the eyes of a loved one and not think selfishly, is this going to be me? Uh, and, and, you know, there are so many personality changes, you know, sometimes people that are very, um, mild, um, before the disease become contentious and will argue with you and it depends on time of day and, and it's exhausting work, um, especially if it's in your home and you're doing it 24 seven, it's just absolutely exhausting. So I get it. Um, and, but people are looking for new things, new ways to engage their loved ones. Um, and, you know, because you're so overwhelmed and you're tired and you're avoiding your doctor's appointments because you're taking care of a loved one and you're, you're not getting your sleep because somebody's wandering in the middle of the night, it's understandable that you're not thinking about, hey, maybe I could use some poetry or, or music or read or whatever connects with the person that, that you know, is living with the illness. Uh, just another major reason why this is a huge health care issue, what it does to caregivers. And folks, as you probably know, a Medicare public assistance pays for very little, if any of this. It is something you should look into now. Long-term care insurance is very expensive, but if you can afford it, now is the time to look into it because once you're diagnosed, you can no longer get it. We've been very proud and honored to have Molly Middleton-Meyer. You can learn more about what she does at her website, mindseyepoetry.com. Molly, thanks so much much. Coming up, it was not all smooth sailing for the captain of the love boat. The dramatic inside story of Gavin McLeod's battle with alcoholism and depression. That's next on Growing Boulder. Hi, it's Mark Middleton with a big announcement. A live version of our award-winning PBS program, Launchpad to What's Next, is coming to the Pew Theater at the Dr. Phillips Performing Arts Center on Wednesday, April 1st at 7 p.m., one night only. Launchpad Live is a high-energy, motivational, and entertainment extravaganza featuring our team of national thought leaders inspiring you to discover what's next in your life. Tickets are now on sale, but they will go fast. Every seat in the house is just $40, so reserve yours now at growingbolder.com slash launchpad live. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. Our next guest you know from his beloved roles on shows like The Mary Tyler Moore Show and The Love Boat, but I'm telling you, you don't know the real story behind actor Gavin McLeod's rise to success. Yeah, in his many iconic roles, he, he played mostly happy-go-lucky characters, but the reality of his life was far from the characters that he portrayed. And in a revealing interview with Groin Boulder, McLeod opens up about his battles with addiction and depression, and he takes us back to the night that he nearly ended it all with a suicide attempt. Before he hit it big, before he became a household name, Gavin McLeod was so poor, he made soup out of ketchup. And that's what we did. We, we'd just take that ketchup bottle and we'd get that hot water and just make ourselves ketchup soup. And the big thing was, if I saved enough money, I would have a hot dog. He's best known as Maury Slaughter from the Mary Tyler Moore Show and Captain Meryl Steuben from The Love Boat, two iconic characters from two of the most popular shows in television history. What you probably don't know is that it was a near-disastrous turn on another classic show that ultimately led to McLeod's success. Yeah, we can parade him right into Captain Binghamton's office. <laughs> While playing Happy Haynes on McHale's Navy, McLeod was anything but happy. When good friend Ted Knight made a guest appearance, he questioned why McLeod would continue doing something that made him so unhappy. She said, I gotta tell you something. I said, you can't continue with this. You're a glorified extra. I said, Ted, I'm feeding the family. He said, well, what about you? You're feeding you? I said, no. McLeod turned to the bottle to try and ease his pain and frustration. But I reached the point where I was so out of it. One night, I said, I'm going to end it. I, you know, I'm not worth anything to anybody. I didn't think about my kids. I didn't think about my wife. 
So he drove his car to the top of Mulholland Drive in the Hollywood Hills to commit suicide by driving off of a cliff. It was so vivid of how I was just really blind drunk, they call it, I guess. I said, this is it, and I started to go off. And just before it, the whole car went off, something took my foot. Something put my foot on that, that brake. It wasn't me, I was out of it. Something did that. So I finally came to, I remember pulling back and saying, what am I gonna do? I can't even do this, you know. He backed away from the cliff and drove to the nearby home of friend and fellow actor Robert Blake. So I went to Robert's house. He said, oh, come on. He said, well, you have to get to my shrink. He'll help you, he'll help you. After several sessions with Blake's therapist, McLeod was convinced that Ted Knight was right. The source of his unhappiness was an unfulfilling role on a show that kept him from auditioning for bigger, better roles. I said, I have to get out of that show. He quit drinking, he quit McHale's Navy, he devoted himself to a higher power, and the rest is television history. If I had stayed with McHale's Navy, I don't know if I would have made it. I wouldn't be seeing you, and right now, I don't think I would have lived. But because of that choice, because of what God has set up for me, I was always like a, a piece of clay that he has moved from place to place, go through this horrendous thing. But, but the love of God is my strength. The joy of God is my strength. Now in his 80s, Gavin McLeod has been sober for more than 40 years. He's happier than ever and has no plans to slow down. And you are no longer just growing older. You are growing bolder. I am. I believe in boldness, especially now in my life. Listen, what's there to lose? What are they going to do to me? You know, what a great guy who has finally found true happiness in his 80s. And Bill, another celebrity who has talked about the addiction and the depression that nearly conspired to end his life. Yeah, I know you really can't talk about celebrities and depression and suicide these days without mentioning the tragic death of Robin Williams either, Mark. His death underscores the severity of depression and the importance of getting help. Yeah, more than 20 million Americans now suffer from depression and more than 100 commit suicide every day. And folks, aging baby boomers are the most... Most at risk. The economy goes bad, marriages fail, jobs lost, health declines, and suddenly middle age doesn't look so good to many. So listen, if you're depressed or think somebody close to you is, get help. As Gavin McLeod showed us, life in our 80s can be the best time yet. Time now for our Surviving and Thriving segment. You know, with the right kind of care and support and the right attitude, it's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in the aftermath. And what a great example for you today. Growing Boulder, Cecily Wilson, a busy television journalist. She was run down. She was stressed out and had constant headaches. But, you know, like a lot of us, she refused to slow down until she actually had a stroke. Cecily is fine now. But she's got this warning for the rest of us. Slow down and learn to say no. I, again, I just ignored them, just thinking it was just only because of my crazy, hectic schedule and lifestyle at that moment. But, you know, there are times when those signs are literally right in your face and you ignore them. And that's what I did. I ignored them. But never again. I spend a lot of time now speaking to other women, especially women of color, who, because we are a lot more prone to fall to heart disease. But I speak to them and I tell them very candidly, you know, I know that my name begins with an S. I do have a blue cape. It's in the closet. (laughs) But we are not super women. And so when we have the opportunity just to say no, say no because it really can make the difference. That could be your kryptonite and take you down. We don't want that. When you think about growing bolder, and it's not about age, it's about attitude, that is Cecily all day. Because, although I lie about my age half the time, I don't really know how old I am. (laughs) I am growing bolder, but I'm so proud to be able to say that nothing is going to stop me from doing what I want to do. And when I hear these stories and I see the stories that are produced right here, I can do that. It inspires me and inspires others to do just the same thing. And and hopefully my story, however small or however large or 
large it is, I'm hoping that my story will cause someone to say, you know what, if she did it, I can do it too. Boy, some great advice, important words from Cecily. All right, coming up on Growing Bolder, one man with a desire to inspire how he's giving hope to millions next on Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. I am Bill Schaefer, along with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. You know, we talk a lot about finding meaning in our lives, about finding a way to pursue our passions, because that's where life gets good, and that's where you find true happiness. Yeah, and it is something, Bill, that's different for each and every one of us. And our next guest is a rare combination of an out-of-the-box thinker, a dreamer, and a doer. He's always admired the nonprofit world, and over the years, he's been especially drawn to the work of the Livestrong Foundation, and the program that he created to support Livestrong's mission is one of the most unique, most powerful anywhere. Let's find out more as we welcome one of the co-founders of Survivor Summit, Mike King. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Hey, you know, we really appreciate you taking some time to to talk us through this. We absolutely love your story because when it comes to finding a way to give back, it's really a great example of looking first at our own lives, of leveraging what we know and who we are to make a difference. And what I'm trying to say is you didn't reinvent the wheel. You basically connected the dots that already existed in your own life. And let's start with that connection to your affinity for Livestrong. How did that begin? Sure. So uh, in about 2005, I had a brother who recommended uh, that we went to do the Ride for the Roses, which is Livestrong's sort of signature fundraising event. Um, and long story short, I went uh, and was just so moved by how powerful it was to see these cancer survivors and their families riding bikes and crossing this finish line and receiving all these sort of special accolades. And it was just extraordinarily powerful. Uh, and I knew I, I, I wanted to be I wanted to be part of it and I wanted to do more. You know, Mike, Mark talked about a lot of the connecting of the dots that you had in your life. And you had a lot of dots. You're an NBA student at Wharton. You had interned at Livestrong, and you were had this leadership program that you took uh, at Wharton to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, and then something brought all those together. What was it about that experience <laughs> that, that made you think, you know, this could become like a Livestrong event? Because at first look, you'd think, no way. Yeah, sure. So actually, we, we uh, after doing that first ride for the Roses, uh, continued. I have three older brothers. And we continued every year, uh, and then in 2011, uh, we were at a, a wrap-up party for the Ride for the Roses. And I had just recently done, uh, as you mentioned, the climb to Kilimanjaro with my business school. Um, and as we sat on a rooftop hearing stories about folks, these really inspiring folks who had started projects to help cancer survivors and supporters and live strong, uh, my brothers and I sat there and thought to ourselves, boy, w- we, we could do something here, uh, and let's brainstorm on what that might be. Uh, and, and like I said, I was fresh off my trip to Kilimanjaro uh, with business school, and I started connecting the dots right there on, on the top of a, a, a rooftop bar in Austin, Texas. Uh, and a week or two later, uh, we were successful in, in sort of launching the idea and getting buy-in from all the parties that we could uh, we could take cancer survivors and their supporters to the top of Kilimanjaro for 
for just what we think is a really powerful experience. So there you go, folks. There is the dreamer and the doer really uh, in the same day, having an idea and figuring out how to make it happen. So so you and your brothers and really your father, Paul, who is a prostate cancer survivor and a few friends dream up this idea of literally, as you said, taking cancer survivors to the top of the world's highest freestanding mountain to make a statement. And, and what is that statement, Mike? What does Survivor Summit tell the world? Well, it tells the world that, you know, cancer is not going to stop these folks. You know, it, it, it certainly is a tough diagnosis and, and uh, you know, for them and their families. But um, this is a way for those cancer survivors and their families to just show that it's not going to stop them and that, you know, they're, they're able to break through the barriers that, that uh, you know, that, that other folks may think uh, cancer imposes on them. And, and it's just an incredible experience to see these folks all along the way and then make it to the top. Uh, and, and we hope that it sends that message that cancer uh, will not stop you, will not slow you down. You'll, you'll still have the ability to live strong, uh, and, and that's why we were so, so, so drawn to the message of live strong and wanted to partner with them. You know, it, it really is an amazing idea, Mike, but unfortunately most ideas that are out of the box like yours never get off the ground. How hard was it to take your dream and your passion and then convince Livestrong to get behind Survivor Summit and really understand the potential there? Well, thankfully, I, I had um, some connections. As you mentioned, I, I interned at Livestrong. And so I, I knew how Livestrong thought. And, you know, their bike rides, a lot of their bike rides, if you think about it, they are, they're putting out cancer survivors and their supporters to go ride, you know, 50, 100 miles on a bike. Uh, and so I like to think that we just sort of extended that distance a little bit and, <laughs> and took it vertical. And so I, I knew that they were behind ideas like this that were, you know, empowering and uplifting to survivors and their families. Uh, and so when I was able to connect with Chris Warner, uh, who's, who's a, one of the, the our, our lead climber, uh, and really bring that legitimacy to it, that we could do this and we could make it happen. And we had this experienced uh, professional guide. Uh, it kind of went from there and really took off. Folks, we're talking with Mike King, who's one of the co-founders of Survivor Summit, an amazing program that has, uh, you know, got a lot of people talking. And, uh, you, you know, Mike, you reached the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro in the inaugural Survivor Summit in 2012. Uh, your brother, Matt, and Chris Callahan, two of your other co-founders, were part of Survivor Summit 2014. And you just mentioned Chris Warner. Uh, as I understand it, the Survivor Summit has a 100% summit rate, which is remarkable, almost unheard of, uh, and, and a good deal of that credit has got to go to Chris Warner. I mean, this guy is an icon, isn't he? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, without Chris Warner, this this doesn't happen, plain and simple. Um, and the 100% success rate, I, I, I don't know the latest statistic. I think it's 20 or 30% of people who start make it to the top. Uh, but it just doesn't happen without his leadership and guidance. He is, he is incredible. So, so Mike, how do you how do you get to go? Are you people listening now? I mean, is it possible for them to go? Do you have to be a cancer survivor, or or what's the next step? You know, how do we all take part in this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so you do not have to be a cancer survivor. Um, we do we do look for folks who have a story, right? So you're a survivor, you're a supporter. Um, you have a story, and that, that really helps the experience and allows everyone to share in a, in a common bond as they go up the mountain. Uh, and then as far as going or learning more, our website is SurvivorSummit.org, uh, and you can get some more information there. You could also check us out on Livestrong's website under the Partnered Events section. And folks, we should mention, uh, you know, that that I was actually, uh, you know, proud to take part in Survivor Summit 14 with uh, Mike's brother Matt and Chris Callahan and Doug Ullman, the CEO of Livestrong, and Wendy Chioji, who many of our listeners know. It was an incredible event, and uh, you know, with. Uh, uh, with Mike's help and Livestrong's help, we're now putting together a documentary that will be released very shortly. And it will give you a very good idea of what this trip, what this amazing expedition and adventure is all about. Put you on the spot here, Mark. You know, we usually ask Mike what the takeaway is from that expedition. For you, for somebody seeing all this, what was the takeaway from climbing a mountain 
for the sake of cancer. It's the most amazing bonding experience I had ever had. You know, you're stripped away of, of all of the, the things you're used to, and you can't get to the top without the support and the help of everybody. And as Chris Warner said, you'll learn to love one another and care more about them than you do yourself, or you won't make it. Uh, and it really is a metaphor for a battle of any kind, but in particular a, a cancer journey, because you just don't think you can reach it when you first see it, but one step at a time, you make it. Great talk with Mike King. Coming up next, he's 70 and still growing strong, and we mean strong, very strong. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Bill Schaefer here along with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And I can't wait for this one, Mark, because our next guest will prove to all of us again it's never too late, not just to get in shape, but it's never too late to get in the best shape of your life. Yeah, that was something unheard of not long Ridiculous. ago. Well, this guy started lifting weights at the age of 44 just to relieve stress, and today at 70, he is a stereotype-smashing role model who actually looks younger today than he did when he started working out nearly 30 years ago. Let's find out more as we welcome Sam Sonny Bryant. Hey, Sonny, how are you? Okay, good morning to everybody. Hey, we appreciate you taking some time to chat with us. And before we learn what it's like to be you today, let's go back to the you before you started working out because you really knew nothing about working out. You had zero experience lifting weights, and I'm guessing you really weren't in great shape. Well, before I started, I was just working out. I would only do a little physical work, but I'd never been to a gym or work out or anything. Well, when I first joined, I didn't know what to do. I just joined the gym, and I started lifting weights. That's all I was doing, lifting weights, lifting weights. And I started watching everybody else, and I started mimicking what they was doing. And I kept doing it, kept doing it, you know. I didn't notice my body changing because that wasn't what I was there for. So I didn't notice the change in my body until one of the guys that operated the gym told me about a contest. So then everything else starts snowballing from there. And how cool is that, Sonny? You know, part of the reason we wanted to share your story is because you had no intention or no idea that you were going to become some bodybuilder out of this. How did that happen? I, ne- I never, that never crossed my mind. I didn't know anything about bodybuilding, be truthful about it. But back then, you know, there was nothing about bodybuilding, but the guys at the gym knew about it. So I did wasn't a member of the gym or no you know, club or nothing, so I didn't know nothing about bodybuilding, you know? And so my thing was to live with release stress, and then and everything just starts snowballing. The more you get, the less the more you want. Folks, we're talking with uh, Sam Sonny Bryant, who is now 70 with the body of a young man. And now, I don't think Sonny's got a webpage, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sonny, and we'll pass that on. But if not, just Google Sonny Bryant, uh, so you can so you can see what this guy looks like. And, and Sonny, we've been told so long uh, by so many people that it's impossible to not only maintain muscle mass and bone density as we age that uh, we're going to have to lose it. But you're proving that that's not true, isn't that right? Right. I, I think once your muscles get conditioned, then you don't really lose it. Just like taking a picture, you know, you always have that image that a picture might not look as sharp and clear as it did when you first took it, but you have that, you still have that image yourself, you know, because I, I really haven't lost no muscle, I don't think I'm going to gain more muscle, but I'm just trending and shaping up and keeping it tight or whatever cut, you know, but I really don't, I don't, I don't follow the rules, you know, I'm an unorthodox trainer, 
you know, and I, and I, I don't choose to follow the rules about working out in boxing because they told me you can't work out seven days and do this and do that. But I've been doing it for seven days forever almost. Now I'm doing it five days a week, twice a day, and one day on uh, Saturday, uh, Sunday. <laughs> and here's I something. I work out seven days a week. That's awesome, Sonny, because that shows us what's possible, because you know what it's like. We have heard so many times that 70 is old, that at 70 you're supposed to be this worn-out, run-down, feeble guy. So how do you keep those thoughts and those images that I'm sure you hear also, how do you keep that out of your mind? Well, uh, I don't believe age makes you old. I think, well, I, I know age don't make you old. It's a mental attitude, you know, because you you condition to believe that at a certain age you're old. And I always feel that your subconscious really conscious mind, you, and your conscious mind dictate what your body do. And if you think old, act old, then you're going to feel old and you're going to be old. Folks, he's not a, just a bodybuilder. The guy's a philosopher. That is, uh, he's dropping some words of wisdom on us. Here, I want though. that on a T-shirt. We, we should print those up and sell the Sonny Bryant T-shirts. I'm gonna make a, I'm gonna make a poster out of that and put it on our Facebook page. So, Sonny, say that again so I can get that correctly. Uh, if you if you think old, if you think old, you're gonna act old. Then you're gonna feel old. Then you're gonna be old. All right, we don't. Let me tell you what, what changed my mind about this age and old philosophy here is when I was in Chicago just working, you know. But on Saturday and Sunday, me and my cousin parties, we had house parties in Edison. And I seen these elderly people party along with us. And I thought, one family, I thought they were a sister and brother, but they were mama and daddy and daughter. Wow. Well, and I thought I said, now, that's what, you know, give me a rude awakening. I said, now, down south, people get a certain age, they work, come on, watch TV, go to bed, and get up, that's all they do. Work, come on, watch TV, get up and go to work the next day, and that's it. But these people, they live after they work, you know. You know, folks, this is this is a smart man. I, I love when you said that you don't pay attention to the rules because, you know, our society beyond a certain age has been brainwashed by the images uh, that the media tells us, by the words that, uh, you know, everybody says we can't do these things. And, and Sonny, you've just ignored all of that to do your things. Uh, I got to ask you this really quickly because bodybuilding has a reputation uh, to many as being unhealthy, an activity that has been fueled for many by steroids. Are those are there those who still look at you and say, man, this guy can't be natural, who think that you have to be juiced? Well, I've been uh, asked about steroids. People claim I was on steroids, which I ne- I'm all natural from day one. Never used steroids, never thought about it. All the guys at the gym tried to get me to get on steroids. and man, if you were on steroids, you'd be awesome. I could be awesome without steroids. <laughs> it's all about health. You- after get the bodybuilding thing, I start getting into this health ritual. I want to be healthy too. See, I want to just look healthy. I want to feel healthy. If I feel healthy, I'm going to be healthy. You know, if I'm doing so, steroids will always out of the question for me. How about another quick set of words of wisdom from Sonny Bryant? You got anything else for us? No, that's it. I just tell people, you know, follow your mind. Do what you want. Don't let other people dictate what you could do or what your age spoke limits you to. You know, because you can get your but that's a commercial I always heard that a body at rest stays at rest and body at motion stays in motion. So you have to keep moving. You can get up and do something. Don't just sit there and feel sorry for it because get up and do something. The more active you are, the more mentally alert you are. We got to get up to Georgia and hang out with Sonny Bryant one of these days. Great guy, great interview. Sonny, thanks so much for your time. And, and folks, really do Google Sonny Bryant uh, and take a look at the pictures and realize that this guy is 70 years old. He's all natural. He works out and he has totally transformed his life uh, because he cares about uh, holding off the effects of aging. Thanks, Sonny.
Coming up, one of the most successful actresses of our time, and she's got the hardware to prove it, but her latest role is one of the most satisfying of her 50-year career. That's next on Growing Boulder. If you're wondering what's next in your life, watch for Growing Boulder's Launchpad to What's Next. It's a big shot of information and inspiration Growing Boulder style from celebrities, experts, and special guests like Rock Hall of Famer Roger McGuinn of the Birds, Olympic gold medalist Rowdy Gaines, and financial guru Gene Chatsky. Airing Sunday morning, March 8th at 11 a.m. on WUCF-TV Central Florida PBS, it's Growing Boulder's Launchpad to What's Next. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And boy, do we have a great guest now. The winner of three Emmy Awards, a Golden Globe, and a Tony. And you know how she got the Tony, Mark? She beat out Meryl Streep. That doesn't happen. Oh, nobody beats Meryl Streep. She's (laughs) also got two Academy Award nominations. The first came when she was 19. Yeah, she is the proverbial triple threat. An amazing list of stage, film, and TV roles spanning 50 years. She is still going strong with a lead role in the independent film Redwood Highway. Let's find out more as we welcome Shirley Knight. Hi, Shirley. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. You know, before we talk about your incredible career, your amazing longevity in an industry that seems to spit people out, tell us about Redwood Highway, which, by the way, folks, is now available on Netflix. You play a woman in her 70s who decides to walk 80 miles on foot. Is that true? That's true, yes. (laughs) How many of those miles did you actually have to walk? Well, you know, I wish I had worn one of those counting things because, you you know, you do things several times. Uh, so I imagine I've, I walked quite a bit. I, I don't know exactly how much, but I walked quite a lot. Of course, not all at once. But you, you've described this as a very simple film with a profound message. What is the message? Well, it's it's really rather wonderful. She's a woman who her son has put in the home, and she doesn't want to be there, and feels that she's still um, active, and, and it sort of worries her to be there because it reminds her of her uh, life. She has too much time on her hands, and she loves to walk, and she decides to walk on the Redwood Highway and revisit the place where she was married by the sea and uh, her visit the motel that they stayed in for their honeymoon and so on. Um, And it sort of helps her to understand where she is in her life and um, the tragedies that have happened to her, which are really horrendous, um, and to kind of take a step forward and examine her life. And it was fascinating for me to do, because I, I'm a widow as, as well, and um, uh, I felt very close to her. Uh, not that I'm that much of a walker, I'm more of a reader, uh, But um, I had a wonderful time doing the film. And what is so terrific is uh, when you get to be my age, you're mainly, apart from theater, I always do leads in the theater, but in in the cinema, you're you're more or less uh, relegated to um, grandmothers and mothers. uh, And and to have the lead in a a wonderful film was really thrilling for me. at this point in my life. So and it's such a success, which is marvelous. It's it's in its tenth week in Portland, Oregon, which is extraordinary. Well well it's one of those films, Shirley, that it's it's so compelling to watch it unfold and, and, and to get to know this character. But you know, I was thinking as as we were watching this, you're in almost every scene. I mean there was a lot of work that you put into this film. Uh, yes, yes, it was. I go on and on, uh, uh, walking and talking, I think. Uh, but I really, really am proud of the film, and uh, I'm glad people are enjoying it. It's, it's on 
uh, Netflix and all the other flicks, you know, the, the iTunes and the this and the that, which is, is marvelous. Uh, I have a lot of my uh, relatives in Kansas who are, are watching it. <laughs> Folks, we're talking to Shirley Knight, who is in her late 70s. I think she, she'd be okay with us telling you that. Has had an amazing career uh, and is still going strong. You know, she's been in, Bill. Uh, Playhouse 90, 77 Sunset Strip, Hawaiian Eye. Uh, she was in Desperate Housewives. She turned down the role of Jr.'s wife in Dallas. I mean, this is someone who is Big time. Entwined, intertwined into the history of television. But, but I want to ask you about your film work, if I may, because you were in As Good As It Gets, Di- Diabolik, uh, Divine Sist- Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, and Paul Blart Mall Cop, which is an Adam <laughs> Sandler film. He also cast you in Grandma's Boy. What were you I thinking? I, I plan to, to uh, uh, I don't know, give him a bit of trouble for all of that, because I told him, I said, you know, I'm not funny. I'm a serious actress. I'm not funny. He said, well, I want you in the film anyway. And, and when I did Mall Cop, he and and Kevin James said, would you please wear a fat suit? <laughs> and I said, uh, okay, because Kevin wanted me to look more like him. Uh, so I wore a fat suit. And we we now did the uh, second one we just finished doing in Las Vegas, Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. Oh, man. And I said, oh, my goodness, it's going to be hot. Do I have to wear a fat suit again? And the <laughs> costumer said, oh, no, no, Kevin's lost weight. <laughs> well, well, let's go from uh, two icons. You know, you got Paul Blart, and then, as we said in the intro, you beat out Meryl Streep. For a Tony, I mean, if that were me, I would put that on my forehead and tell everybody who came around had to be a very proud moment for you. You know, it was such a wonderful play that I did, Kennedy's Children. It was such a terrific part, and uh, it was lovely. But, of course, yes, uh, one doesn't think in terms of beating people. But But it was Meryl Streep. Hey, Shirley, we're, we're down to our final minute, and I'd love to ask you what's next, but, but even more importantly than that, I, I want to, you know, what is the moral of your story? I mean, you're, you seem so happy, you're so engaged. What can we learn about life from you? Well, I, I think acceptance is, is uh, the most important thing when one gets older. I think that we, uh, people in general, have a tendency to uh, feel uh, bad as they get older, and they they want somehow to go back. And uh, that thing of going backwards and wishing that you could do it differently, uh, which I think I certainly do, and and I think most people do, I think the, the main thing is to really try to be open and honest and caring about people, um, and understanding what life is, you know, that we're here, we're here to help each other, we're here to take care of each other, and, and uh, to bring joy to people, and we have so much tragedy, and every, every day something else happens that is sad. We're going to have to leave it there. I mean, you have brought so much joy to all of us, and, and you maybe never more so than in your most recent film, Redwood Highway, folks. It's available on DVD and video on demand. Thank you to the great Shirley Knight. And before we leave you today, our takeaway is from the great Pablo Picasso, who was still painting masterpieces until shortly before his death at the age of 91. Picasso once said, quote, the meaning of life is to find your purpose and the purpose of life is to give it away. We call that moving forward and giving back. Yeah, he was a little more eloquent. But the point is this, folks, to really help others, you have to help yourself first. So get out there and start growing bolder. And we'll see you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. 
All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulders Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming rope, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh